This is Coffee at KYUK, conversation between friends and neighbors. Come in and have a cup. Joining us for coffee are Julian Fisher and Robert Kaler, two Alaska biologists with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service who study migrating birds that spend time in the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge. Here to speak with them is KYUK's Steve Heimel. Good morning. Hello, hello, good morning, everybody, and we're ready to go, as I understand it. I'm uh, glad to be on here and glad to be talking about this uh, really interesting subject at this time in the morning. Uh, Rob Kaler, why don't you uh, say hello? Good morning. I got my cup of coffee. Excellent. I do, too. And uh, over there, also, we've got Julian Fisher. Julian, hello. Good morning, Yukon Delta. Uh, it's Julian Fisher with Fish and Wildlife Service. All right. Well, it's very good. So both of you are with Fish and Wildlife Service, and uh, we're, we want to talk, I want to talk, about the condition of our, our birds in that enormous, that enormous Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge and how things are going, particularly because we got spring coming up. And for people in uh, the Delta, they're looking at uh, goose season approaching, not tomorrow, but it won't be all that long. And they want to know, are, are, are the goose doing okay? Are the geese doing okay? And to what degree? I guess I will put this to uh, Julian. Uh, can we can we give them assurance that the uh, the geese are doing well and the ducks? Yeah, Steve. Thanks for the question. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, with spring comes a celebration. Uh, migratory birds are a really important food source for subsistence hunters on the Yukon Delta, particularly the waterfowl populations: ducks, geese, swans. And the Yukon Delta is just known around the world as a premier nesting area for migratory birds. Millions of migratory birds come from all directions. So spring is coming. The subsistence hunt will open up on April 2nd. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I can, I can provide some general assurance that in the, in the big picture, the status of geese and ducks is generally okay. But many in the region might recall a time when populations of geese were really low. Uh, back in the 1980s, it was the residents of the Yukon Delta, particularly on the coast, that raised an alarm bell, uh, which led to the, the uh, Association of Village Council presidents and wildlife agencies to develop plans to rebuild those populations. And it was, it was successful. There were hunting closures for a bit, and then uh, with with those closures came uh, growth in the cackling goose population, the white-fronted goose population, and the brant population. And it took a lot longer for emperor geese to come back, but but um, they were opened up uh, for harvest again in, in 2017. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yes, I think that is one of the huge uh, co-management success stories. And it goes back even before ABCP to Nunam Klutzti um, and uh, uh, getting the cooperation of the people who actually do the subsistence activities to distinguish what species and treat different species differently. And it turns out that people were very good at that, and we got conservation results right away. And as you've said, they've only improved. Yeah, that's 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 right. Um, so in general, geese are doing pretty well, um, but it's, it's not entirely rosy. Uh, one exception 
for the health of the geese is, is black brant, which is a small marine-oriented goose. They nest in tight colonies right there on the coast, uh, and they winter in nearshore coastal waters. And while the overall Pacific population of black brant appears stable throughout its range, the colonies, the large colonies on the Yukon-Kuskokum Delta have declined substantially over the last 30 years. But like I said, the North Slope population of, um, of black brant is actually growing. And so on balance, the, 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 whole, the whole number of, of brant seems fairly stable. Um, but it's that, that shift in distribution that's really surprising to us, seeing more birds breed north and fewer on the Yukon Delta, likely due to changes in the habitat, which we can talk more about if you like. But um, we're seeing changes on the in the wintering grounds as well, with most of those brant formerly spending their winters down in Mexico. But we're seeing more and more of these these black brant now wintering in Alaska, despite the cold weather up here, uh, nearly half of the population, about 50,000, 70,000 of these black brant are now wintering uh, at Eisenbeck Lagoon, which is quite a, a change. That's just, I can't, I can't even believe it. I've been to Eisenbeck. I've seen those geese. <laughs> and I can't even, I can't get my head around it. So I'm not going to. I'm not going to try. What do you think might have changed about the uh, the habitat that uh, we're seeing more brant in the north? Well, so brant feed primarily on on sedges. Uh, they really focus in on a, a sedge called Carex subspathosia. Uh, we refer to it commonly as subspath. And the size of the the grazing lawns that these geese feed on on the Yukon Delta has shrunk over the years, but it's actually expanding up on the North Slope. In fact, there's so much of this grazing lawn habitat that a lot of it is unexploited by geese at this time. And so what we see is, is goslings, after they hatch out, there's so much food for them. They're actually about 50% heavier than those that breed on the Yukon Delta. And a heavy gosling means a higher likelihood they're gonna survive. And then if those goslings, then they migrate south. If more of them are surviving on the from the North Slope than on the Yukon Delta, they're going to be returning to that northern latitude to raise young of their own when they're of age. So it's Thank a change in habitat we're seeing, which is real interesting. Thank you, Julian. I want to turn to Rob Kaler now. Rob, uh, of the Division of Migratory Bird Management, and you, as I understand it, are also into seabirds. Is that right? Yeah, I am a seabird specialist, and um, we've had seabird die-offs, but, yeah, I'm more of a marine person, whereas Julian's more uh, the waterfowl side. Yeah, I know. Um, did you go to the Marine Science Symposium? Yeah, I drank some. I drank a lot of coffee at the Marine Science Symposium. Yeah, I guess that was two weeks ago. One too bad. One too good a coffee, as I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to complain, um, but yeah, no, that <laughs> it wasn't great. Well, uh, Julia Parrish uh, gave a presentation there. You probably saw it. She's from University of Washington, and she was basically documenting the the, the birds, dead birds that wash ashore, and uh, the increasing number of incidents and the increasing numbers of that. Uh, you already knew that, right? Yeah, we were, yeah. Uh, Julia Parrish, uh, Coastal Observation Seabird Survey Team, COAST is the acronym. 
and uh, University of Washington. So, yeah, we work very closely with Julia and her team. And and it just what she what she uh, theorized there was that because these die offs are becoming more frequent, uh, what might have been earlier seen as recovery seems less likely. Well, yeah, um, there's a yeah. So seabirds, they um, are generally long lived, about 20 years, but they don't breed until they're three or four years old. And I'm generalizing. But um, so when you have an impact of, of seabird die offs, what we've been recording, uh, especially in the Bering Strait region, uh, the northern Bering and the southern Chukchi Seas, um, you know, those birds are are not finding food. So starvation is the leading leading factor of why these birds are dying. But when a bird is compromised, not finding food, so they're emaciated and starved, um, they are more susceptible to disease. So that's something that we want to continue to monitor as well um, for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And we have our, our partners uh, throughout the, the coastal, you know, it's very hard to monitor seabirds um, washing up on shore, uh, dead and dying, uh, across the, an expansive range like Alaska's coastline. So we've been working very closely with a lot of partners, including Julia Parrish at Coast. Yeah. Well, you know, remote sensing is getting better. And uh, I, I think local cooperation is also uh, getting better. And nowadays, people, everybody's got drones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And our, our Department of Interior fleet was recently uh, renewed. So we'll be doing that as well. But yeah, we do. We rely so heavily on partners, um, community members, tribal partners, uh, the state and other federal agencies to help monitor um, the, you know, beached birds, uh, birds washing up on shore, dead and dying. And of course, uh, highly pathogenic avian influenza. That's something that we're also trying to keep an eye on too. Um, 2022. And then of course, COVID has been a challenge, but, um, our partners have been amazing, uh, in, in terms of re- keeping vigilant and reporting observations of dead and dying birds so that we can track the, the geographic range, you know, where where are birds being reported, um, the magnitude, how many, and then that duration. Uh, when do you first start seeing those birds wash up? And this is the sixth year in the Bering Strait region. So 2017 was the first year of, of you know, what we would call some substantial reports of dead and dying birds washing up on shore. And then uh, 2022, last year, while it was lower, it was still... Um, it was still higher than the baseline. And that's that's what the Coast Coast Observation Seabird Survey Team, that's part of what they do is kind of what's the baseline? Because we know birds are dying. They wash up on shore. But uh, what's unusual? That's the, yeah, the baseline that Coast helps provide. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm glad you also that you uh, brought up the bird uh, flu. Um, I remember uh, Marine Science Symposium a few years back, uh, uh, a person, a scientist on a, uh, a trawl transect across the uh, Bering Sea, down in the lower part of the Bering Sea, sailed for days through dead shearwaters, and just she reported it to the, at the symposium. And afterwards, she wouldn't let me interview her because she said, "Look, I'm not qualified. I could get in trouble." But I mean, this is shearwaters birds that stay in the water a lot and over the water a lot. And here was a, a mortality that uh, probably those birds didn't wash up anywhere. They just, she just happened to see them. 
And that might happen a lot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, birds that die at sea, um, they sink. And then even when they do make it to the shore, might be uh, scavenged before anybody can actually report it. Yeah. And I think you're referring to 2019. That was a, and so shearwaters breed in, in New Zealand and Australia. And we're talking about 30, about, you know, 30 to 40 million birds that come up to what we call the austral, you know, the austral winter to our, our summer and use our productive waters. So it's another, another, um, organism using our productive seas, but washing up on shore in masses. Um, and there are, we, the euphemism is uh, seabird wrecks, and but yes, 2019, 2019 was a big uh, die-off year for uh, short-tailed shearwaters in particular. Well, I, I, I'm going to keep with you, Rob Kaler, because you're also, I understand, the chair, the chair of the East Asian Australasian Flyway Partnership, which is a mouthful, but essentially it involves cooperation between all of these countries like New Zealand, Australia, Singapore. And um, also the year 2019, because I wanted to get your comment on we had the AOS, the, uh, um, the you know, the, the ornithologists uh, all over the country. They met in Anchorage in 2019 and there was there they were all this stuff about the bar-tailed godwit was coming out and how far it flies without landing. And just really amazing science was coming out of that. But the habitat concerns being raised at AOS in 2019 were enormous. And uh, they had to do with the Yellow Sea. And since that time, as I understand it, and I get this out of uh, Scott uh, Weidensall's book, but you certainly is going to know about it, Rob, is that China has agreed now to create all these conservation areas and stop uh, a lot of that development that they were doing in the Yellow Sea that was eating up all the birds' uh, habitat, the staging habitat they use. Yes, geez, Steve, you um, you are very knowledgeable. Absolutely, East Asian Australasian Flyway Partnership, uh, the Yellow Sea. China has done a lot of reducing uh, reclamation, reclaiming the land, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, reducing those permits and really improving uh, seabird conservation, well, sorry, shorebird conservation, and in particular, not reclaiming the Yellow Sea. Uh, that is a shared sea with North Korea and South Korea as well. And um, yeah, no, they're uh, huge, huge improvements in terms of their, their wildlife conservation efforts. Absolutely. It's absolutely. And, and, and Steve, ahead, the, uh, one, one of those birds that you're probably thinking about there as you're talking about the, the East Asian Australasian flyway is, is the bar-tailed godwit that uh, Fish and Wildlife and, and U.S. Geological Survey uh, scientists have been counting. On the Yukon Delta, it's really important habitat for those birds. Uh, here in Alaska, um, most recent count was about 90,000 of these birds uh in the shoals in autumn where they really gorge themselves on super productive intertidal areas. And uh, recently there was a record breaking flight of one of these birds that was marked. Um, they flew 8,000, that bird flew 8,000 miles over one week period until it got down to its wintering areas in New Zealand and Australia. It's just fascinating to think of a bird coming off the Yukon Delta and then heading 
halfway around the world. Amazing. And I understand this 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 habitat area is someplace not far from Chifornik out towards the coast. Yeah, the Cuscoquim Shoals is a very important area for for these bar-tailed godwits as they as they stage prior to that long migration. Yeah, well, I, you know, we're really really running short on time, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to be sure that we uh, highlighted that and the importance of that habitat. We're learning more and more. Uh, is there good, would you like more funds for monitoring your birds? Well, gee, Steve, <laughs> I've got my coffee cup open. Uh, yeah, we have a monitoring program. Um, we rely on, we, uh, as a, as a governmental agency, we are, um, we get our budget from the U.S. Congress. And so we're hoping that um, monitoring remains a, a, an aspect of, of everything we do so we can keep, a, keep our fingers on the pulse of these birds and, um, and help co-manage them throughout the state of Alaska. Okay, well, we're out of time. Thanks, both of you. Thanks, Steve. Very welcome, Steve. Thanks a lot. All right. That's KYUK's Steve Heimel speaking with Julian Fisher and Robert Kaler. They're two biologists with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Join us tomorrow for Coffee and Yuktoon. This is Coffee at KYUK. That's Coffee weekday mornings at 8.40. Catch up on old episodes by visiting KYUK.org. Or find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcast.